0: This week on The Futurists.
1: The fear of the future. When you look into the future, you see primarily a threat or an opportunity. And I think more and more of us are seeing the future. It's very threatening. And uh, that feeds the fear. I don't want to go there. It's too scary. When there's a surfer surfing out, paddling out to ride the next big wave, that surfer is afraid. They know that people have not just fallen off their board. People have died riding those waves. But they're still paddling because they're so excited about the opportunity to do something that hasn't been done before.
2: Hey, Brett. Uh, Great to see you again. Welcome back, back in the hosting chair. Yeah, welcome back to everyone who's listening to the futurist. We've been enjoying having the series of discussions Um, now for several months. Brett King and I have been talking to people who are thinking about the future, but not just thinking about it. They're forecasting, planning, envisioning, and building the future that they see. Uh, This is a super interesting conversation for me to participate in because it's an opportunity for me to reach out to people who've influenced me profoundly. And this week, we have an opportunity to do that with someone who's made a massive influence on not just me, but many, many folks who were involved in the internet in the early days, in the 1990s. There were a series of written, uh, books that were written by a partner at Deloitte who was focused on network technology, network community, and network business. And in fact, I have these books here right with me right now, net gain, net worth. These were books that made a profound influence on me when I worked at Sony Pictures. And so it's a great big pleasure for me to welcome John Hagel Free. John, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Futurists. We're super excited to have you here.
1: Quick question. You mentioned that I was a partner at Deloitte. When I wrote those books, I was a partner at McKinsey & Company. Ah, thank Hold you. I don't know if, that, if that's relevant, but just wanted to throw that in.
2: Oh, just to clarify. Okay, fair point, fair point. <laughs> so you were at McKinsey at the time. But still, I mean, those books had a big influence. And I'm sure for you, that was a big life-changing experience to write those books as well.
1: Oh, absolutely,
2: absolutely. I think what a lot of people might not realize is that those books anticipated things that today we take for granted, but at the time they were not so clear. Things like virtual communities. Uh, You know, with all the hoopla about the metaverse that's happening right now, you would think this is a new idea. But in fact, in the mid-90s, that was a lively topic of discussion. I remember it very well. So it wasn't a lot of structured thinking at the time. We were basically throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall, trying to figure out how it would work. And books like yours were really, really helpful in guiding us to understand the economics behind community.
0: Yeah. So, John, um, when what years were you at Deloitte then? Uh,
1: I joined Deloitte in 2007, and I uh, retired from Deloitte in 2020. So...
0: So, did you ever work with Phil Strauss? Do you know Phil? The
1: name's familiar, but it's. A so he was, yeah, he,
0: so. no, he was the industry practice director for financial services, but he sort of hired me when I was there, and um, uh, but I left in two thousand, end of two thousand, I left Deloitte, um, I. Yeah ran the e-business practice in Hong Kong. I just wanted to see if we had some overlap, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's cool. So. So, so one of the things that, yeah, that comes up when you're a management
2: consultant um, is there's a little bit of diplomacy involved in that business because you're coming in as an outsider. Uh, You're there to do an assessment. I remember very clearly when the folks from McKinsey would come into the companies that I worked with and there was an element of fear because you didn't really know what was afoot. Um, You know, here come a bunch of guys in suits. Sometimes there was women in suits, but anyway, they were always wearing suits, conducting these long, long interviews. And you're sort of thinking to yourself, where is this going? And it does feel a little bit like cross-examination. You know, they're management consultants, so you know they're there to fix a problem. You just don't know exactly what problem they're gonna fix. So, John, your recent book, your most recent book that was published last year during the pandemic is called The Journey Beyond Fear.
0: Such a good title.
2: (laughs) So this is like a shift of focus for you now where you're actually talking about more the psychology of change as opposed to management consulting uh, and change management. Tell us a little bit about your book.
1: Yeah, well, I like to say that um, most of my business career was in business strategy, and I was taught to believe that strategy is everything. If you have the right strategy, you win. And over the years, I've come to believe that actually uh, psychology is much more important. If we don't understand the emotions that are shaping our choices and actions, the best strategy is just going to sit on a shelf somewhere. And so um, that was part of what led me to write the book. The other thing, I started writing the book five years ago. um, I was traveling around the world as part of my work, and everywhere I went, the dominant emotion that I was encountering was fear at the highest levels of organizations, at the lowest levels, out in the communities. And I was just struck that on the one hand, I think it's very understandable. I think there are reasons for fear. I also believe it's a very limiting emotion. And so the focus of the book is how do we, first of all, acknowledge the fear? Because many of us don't even want to acknowledge that we're afraid. But more importantly, how do we move beyond the fear and cultivate emotions that will help us have more impact that's meaningful to us? And so...
2: And when you talk about fear in the book, you're not just talking about generalized fear or anxiety or something. You're talking about something very specific, which is um, a performance requirement that people expect, you know, that digital technology presents executives with this challenge that not everybody feels like they can measure up to. And it's about performance.
1: Well, I would say uh, the way I characterize the fear that I'm focused on in the book, it's the fear of the future. When you look into the future, do you see primarily a threat or an opportunity and i think more and more of us are seeing the future it's very threatening and uh that feeds the fear i don't want to go there it's too scary yeah and so just
0: I th- but I think that that element of human behavior. Can you really be a good futurist, you know, or forecaster without understanding human behavior? I think that's really central to the way we we describe the future impacting humanity. We're often describing. Um, you know, we talk about the rate of change. You know, technology adoption diffusion. We talk about um, you know adoption rates. Um, all of this, in some way, is is behavioural in nature. But at, at the heart of it, as you say, is as st- Technology is having more of an impact as it's speeding up and the uncertainty associated with change comes up. Fear is, uh, is a very clear emotion that, that uh, people, people express. But looking at historical paradigms, is this just human nature because you know wouldn't wasn't the church fearful of of the printing press wasn't um you know uh, weren't uh, you know ho- horse and buggy drivers fearful of of, of the automobile uh, you know i mean isn't it doesn't change where it impacts you personally create that sort of displacement fear the irrelevance fear
1: yeah I, I certainly don't want to suggest we've never had fear in in the world before today sorry no <laughs> There's been fear throughout the world, um, it, throughout history, at different points in time. I mean, you highlighted things like the automobile. Okay, when the automobile came in, people certain people were afraid. Other people yeah. were actually pretty excited about it, but certain people were afraid. And what's happening today, the way I describe the, the reason fear is understandable today is, first of all, the um the pace of change is accelerating at an unknown rate. That we things we thought we could yeah. count on are no longer there. the, the other thing is uh, in, intensifying, mounting performance pressure. We are under the, the global competition is intensifying, and it's not just for companies; it's for individuals. I'm increasingly confronted with the question from workers: Is when is my job going to be taken by the robot? When am I going to lose my job? there's a lot of fear at the personal level, not just at the corporate level. And then, if that weren't enough, because of all the connectivity we've created around the world, globally, small events in a faraway place in the world cascade into extreme disruptive events and leave us scrambling, dare I mention pandemic. So the many things are coming together that are making fear, intensifying fear on a global basis.
2: And what's the impact on a company? So uh, when an organization is confronted with the need to change and the reaction is fear, it's fear at the group level, it's fear at the leadership level, and then individual workers also experience their own anxiety about their careers. What's the impact on the company's ability to execute?
1: Uh, It significantly hampers the ability. One piece of advice I have, I've worked with leaders of large organizations around the world one piece of advice I have is never ever underestimate the power of the immune system and the antibodies that are going to mobilize at the slightest indication exactly. of a desire to change to crush it. And I, these are not bad people. These are not people that are, have bad intentions. They want to do the right thing, but they're driven by fear. And the right thing is to hold on to what you have. Don't change. Yeah, yeah. That's I'll true. Also I also say that. I, I you know sit in risk management meetings of large companies, and the whole meeting is about okay, what's the risk if we do this? What's the risk if we do that? What's the risk if we do that? Never once have I had a meeting where there's a discussion about what's the risk of not doing anything. What's the risk of just continuing yeah. to do what we what we're doing?
2: A paralysis that sets in. You know, we can say it's a the fear triggers a paralysis in the organization and probably on the individual level as well. What's interesting about that to me, though, is historically, if you think back like, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, where does fear come from as an emotion? Fear is a motivator, right? So fear, when you imagine, you know, earlier, thousands of generations ago, people on a savanna uh, who'd see some animals coming over the horizon, and if they looked like they were predators, there'd be a fear impulse there. But that fear impulse would be fight or flight. It would cause you to trigger uh, some kind of motion or some kind of action. What's interesting today in this technological world is that we're not on the savannah, we're stuck where we are, and I feel like it uh, paralyzes people.
0: John, um, you know, that that uh, immune system issue that exists within corporations, um, you know, it, it, and also as you talk about the fear we have uh, of, of these technologies emerging. Um, you know, we, for example, we debate whether artificial intelligence is going to be good for humanity, whether, you know, um, humanity will survive the emergence of super intelligent AI and so forth, right? Um, and we spend a lot of um, time arguing whether or not AI should happen when history teaches it's it's largely inevitable um, and change within these organizations is also largely inevitable. Like digitization, you know, I, I work a lot in the banking space, for example, digitization in the banking industry is a, a foregone conclusion, but the amount of effort that is expended by, you know, traditional companies in trying to defend their existing business model against this change is extraordinary. When history teaches us that it's, it's, that companies that resist this change just don't succeed so how did you typically communicate that in a business setting and you know what are the what organizations are successful at looking beyond that resistance as you say the risks and and seeing the opportunities uh, more effectively what are the characteristics of those organizations
1: no i think it it's hard to characterize i mean again we're talking about psychology which is ultimately about individuals so The question is, within the leadership group, what are the individuals motivated by and how do we find people who are at least open to focusing on the opportunities, the big inspiring opportunities out in the future? And then how can we use that to inspire others to join us to address that? And I'm a big uh, proponent, Uh, again, (laughs) I'm a bit uh, contrarian. Most people, when they talk about Uh, change today in organizations say it's a top-down big bang. We need to change everything. And by the way, it's a burning platform. If we don't change everything, we're all going to die. So it's feeding the fear. Right. Versus focusing on an opportunity and saying, no, we're not going to change the entire organization. We're going to find an edge to the existing organization that could be mobilized to target that opportunity and start to show results quickly so that we can overcome skepticism and fear of others. We're not asking everyone to change, we're just mobilizing to address a big opportunity. And that starts the process. I mean, again, I'm oversimplifying, there's a lot of complexity here, but it's the notion of finding the individuals who are open to that kind of opportunity and willing to take action around it.
2: So in your book, Journey Beyond Fear, one of the things that you you focus on as the antidote to this fear problem, this paralysis is this idea of passion. What is the passion that gets you motivated? So, in other words, if the fear is not going to motivate you out of paralysis, maybe your passions will. And you use passion in a really specific sense. You're referring to the passion linked to the spirit of discovery or exploration. Talk a little bit about exploration.
1: Yeah, again, this is based on, on research that I've been doing for decades. So it's not just me sitting there thinking, it's um I was looking, I was seeing, we were in a world of mounting performance pressure. So I said, let's look at environments where there is sustained extreme performance improvement. And what can we learn from those environments? And we looked at a broad diversity of environments, not just business environments, but things like extreme sports, online war games, where can we see sustained extreme performance improvement? And the common element across all those environments, despite their diversity, was a very specific form of passion. And I'm cautious here because passion is a word that's used very loosely. Everybody talks about it, but we all have different meanings attached to it. This is a very specific form of passion that emerged from the research. And it has three components to it. One is people who have this passion are excited by and driven by having more and more impact in a specific domain. They are driven by that. Secondly, they're excited by challenges. In fact, they seek out the challenges. If they're not being challenged, they seek them out. And then the third element of the passion of the explorer is these people, when confronted with a challenge, their first reaction is, how can I connect with other people who will help me get to a better answer faster? So they're extremely well-connected. And build a lot of trust because they're willing to say, "I don't know, I need help. Will you help me?" And so that I think drives significant action and learning. Um, and I think we all we all have that within us. It's just a question of finding it, drawing it out, and cultivating it. And I should say too, I don't believe that means we're going to eliminate fear. I mean, I, the example I use is big wave surfer. When there's a surfer surfing out, paddling out to ride the next big wave, that surfer is afraid. They know that people have not just fallen off their board. People have died riding those waves. But they're still paddling because they're so excited about the opportunity to do something that hasn't been done before.
2: Now, when you talk about reaching out to people who share the passion, uh, sometimes those people are outside of the organization, right? So sometimes you might find yourself in a situation where you're working in a company where it's kind of uninspiring. Uh, They kind of like approach everything as if you can just do next year what you did last year. And we all know now that's not likely to be a recipe for success, but it can be pretty frustrating if you're stuck in an organization like that. Um, Talk to me a little bit about networks, about people networking and networking with like-minded people outside of the organization to drive change?
1: Well, let me start before we get to networks with another concept that, again, comes from research, which I've done, which is that the people who have this kind of passion come together into small groups, typically anywhere between three to 15 people, no more than 15 people, because the goal is to form deep trust-based relationships with each other. And then to support each other and share our excitement about what we're trying to do, but also challenge each other, constantly challenging each other. How can we get even more impact? What do we need to do? So the core unit, at least for me, of this journey beyond fear is these small, I call them impact groups that will reinforce each other's passion and help each other to learn faster and have more impact and they're not just discussion groups again i want to clarify because a lot in the business world we talk about teams and you know gatherings where we sit and talk and then we go out and do our actions as is what, we, what our job is no these people are driven to have more action and so um they're constantly driven on that level and i think that then it's a question of how do we scale that i mean if it's a small group it mm, just yeah. a, at most 15 people, it's how do we connect them into broader networks where they can learn from each other and share their experiences and excitement.
0: So, John, um, you know, I think one of the challenges here is this fairly short-termism that we have in the systems at least in place we have you know we for us we're thinking about next month's um you know bills um you know we're thinking about our bonus maybe uh, at the end of the year either companies are dealing with you know what's happening this quarter potentially what's happening next year in terms of revenue pipelines you know government we're talking about the next election cycle in a couple of years we tend to be fairly short-term focused but, but you talk in one of your recent blogs, you talked about this zoom in and zoom out strategy, the effort to anticipate what's going to happen in the future, because I I feel like a lot of resistance to change is that very short term ism that we have, like climate change wouldn't exist if humanity was focused on what the species is going to be like in 30 to 50 years, because, um, you know, we would be saying we can't you know, let this happen because the costs of that to the system and in terms of human lives will just be um, too significant. So let's act on it now. But that's not what we've done. So how do we change that part of human nature? You know, tell us about that anticipation element.
1: Yeah, I think, again, this is a natural consequence of fear. I mean, if you talk to psychologists about fear, people who are afraid shrink their time horizons. They only focus on the present because that's challenging enough. I can't afford to look ahead and anticipate the future. And I think, again, one of the elements in this journey beyond fear is recognizing that the future is going to shape our actions today. And if we're driven by threat, then we're going to, you know, just short term uh, perspective. We need to look ahead and see opportunities that will drive us to set, anticipate what's out there and what we could accomplish if we all came together.
0: Is this a problem that we're just going to fix with a post-scarcity society? You know, you're fairly optimistic about the future in terms of what technology will do for us. Um, but, you know, uh, does does the post-scarcity society, does, does universal basic income, for example, is that going to um, remove... Uh, fear because once people don't have to worry about putting food on the table, does it give them the freedom to um, be more evolutionary in their thinking as an example? Or does it just mean that landlords are going to raise the rent on everybody right? right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I just worry that uh, things like universal basic income breed complacency. And my view is that the key is to create excitement and a sense of urgency about addressing opportunities in the future. The opportunities are endless. And every time we, we, we grab onto an opportunity, there's another one that's emerging in the future. And so I think it's again, it's cultivating those emotions where we're excited about the opportunities that are ahead of us and that we've got to come together to uh to achieve them.
2: Don, let me push back on that a little bit. Uh, so um, I know that you are a big believer in exponential technology and expanding and, ex- and exponentially increasing opportunity. And you've written about that. And, you, and part of your book, part of the message of your book is to get people to focus on that opportunity. Yeah. But if you look around at society, and I don't just mean in the United States, it seems to me all over the world. Many people are not experiencing exponentially increasing opportunity. Many people are feeling like they're on the brink of desperation. And what they're experiencing is growing inequality, uh, lack of access, uh, opportunities that seem to be reserved for inflation. some people who have connections. Yeah. Then we're hit with all the present stuff, exactly inflation, shortages. Uh, you know, companies are cutting back. Some companies are cutting 18% of their workforce and so forth, rising prices. You can start to see the picture there. That's a pretty bleak picture I'm painting. How do you respond to that? How do you maintain your faith in exponentially increasing opportunity in the face of that?
1: Well, first of all, I I would urge people not just to look at today, look for the past several decades at key trends around things like hunger, poverty, Any, any dimension you want to look at. There has been exponential improvement in all of those globally, not just in a specific City or country globally, but we get so focused on looking at the examples of things that are still struggling, and I don't want to diminish those at all. There are a lot of people, a lot of communities in in the world that are still desperately struggling. But if you look at the long term trend, <laughs> there is reason for optimism, and That's, the key is to yeah. focus on what are the opportunities ahead to bring more and more of those marginalized people into prosperous economy.
2: Yeah, that's 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 actually a very good point. If you zoom out big enough to the global scale, you can see that over the past 20 years, 30 years, literally billions of people (laughs) have been moved out of poverty into some kind of middle class, depending on what part of the world they're in. Um, That's a significant achievement. That is certainly worth bearing in mind. Now, that might not help you pay the bills this month. It might not help you deal with your child's tuition. But in the big scheme of things, life trust is is pretty positive.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay, I think it's probably time for us to head out to break. You are listening to The Futurists, uh, with myself, Rob Tersik, and my co-host, Brett King. Today, we're talking to John Hagel III, who is well-respected and well-regarded as one of the original strategic planners. One of the folks who, for 40 years, has been at the very forefront of helping companies grapple with the prospect of change. So far, he's been talking to us about fear, the paralysis of fear, and the psychology of change. We're gonna take a break now. When we come back from the break, we'll get a little bit more into some of the proactive things that companies are doing and some of the optimism of the future. Hang in there tight. We'll be right back after this.
0: Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King.
2: And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hey, hi, you're listening to The Futurists again. um, I'm Rob Chercik, your host, along with my co-host, Brett King. And today we're talking to John Hagel. And John's been a respected figure in the landscape of change for decades, uh, first at McKinsey and then later at, uh, at Deloitte, where he was a partner. He's the author of a number of books, most recently the author of The Journey Beyond Fear. We talked a lot about that. Now in the second half, we're going to focus on things that are a little bit more optimistic. And John, I want to talk to you a little bit about action, taking action. Uh, As a management consultant, you've had many, many years where you've been in the process of evaluating organizations and giving them action plans and recommendations and so forth. But as we all know, one of the curses of being a consultant is that you deliver that big report at the end of the project, and it gets put on a shelf where it collects dust. How do you get people to take action?
1: (laughs) Wow. Um, Well, first of all, I'll emphasize the reason I focus on action is that uh, I believe in a rapidly changing world, we need to uh, learn at a faster and faster rate and learning in the form of creating new knowledge, not just sharing existing knowledge. And the only way we can really create new knowledge is through action. If we just sit there with ideas until and unless we act on them and see what results are achieved and learn from those results, we're never gonna learn as rapidly as we need to. So that's my focus. And to your question about how to get focus on that, uh, that's one of the reasons I'm a strong proponent of, as mentioned earlier, an approach to strategy that I call Zoom Out, Zoom In, which at one level encourages leadership to look ahead several decades, not just five years, but 10 to 20 years, And then to focus on what action can we take in the next six months? Not a 20-year plan, but what action in the next six months? And only two or three initiatives, not 20. What are the two or three that would have the greatest impact in accelerating our movement?
0: Moving the needle. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and helping us to learn both about the opportunity and about what actions are going to be required to address that opportunity. So, to me, that's the, the drive to, for action
2: here. And, and you've got advice on this topic that goes beyond uh, business managers and, and executives, leaders, uh, executive leaders, and so on. You actually have advice for pundits and authors as well. One of the things I noticed on your blog, and John's got an excellent blog. If you haven't looked at it, we recommend you check it out. Um, one of the yeah, things John you
0: mentioned, slash your... blog. Yes.
2: <laughs> is, uh, you, you wrote a blog post called Return on Attention. I thought this was really quite interesting because yeah, as everyone knows the adage is, we're in an attention economy, the scarcest commodity is attention, et cetera, et cetera. And, and your point is that uh, how people are gathering information is less and less from deep dives into things like books. Amusing since all three of us are book writers, uh, you know, we're all authors of books, like, sorry, that's not the preferred mode of delivery today. It's a, it's a three minute clip on TikTok. That's where most people are getting their information. So your point is that information is shrinking into bite-sized nuggets. And, um, and while that's gratifying for people because it feels fast and they can consume it easily and so forth, uh, one of the things that happens is that that actually reduces people's ability to do anything with it because they're not really getting an action plan, they're just getting an idea or a nugget, as I said. Um, and so your prescription in your blog post on return on attention is that um, experts, pundits, and futurists like the people listening to this show have to get in the habit of not just saying, here's some information, here's a strategy, here's an idea, you got to go one step beyond that and say, and here's what to do about it. Here's the action step that you must take. Uh, tell us a little more about that, about that idea, where you know the people who are providing the advice are now also going to be in the action business.
1: Yeah, well, again, it goes back to the broader theme of we're in a world of mounting performance pressure for all of us, and that all of us have an increasing need to have more impact in whatever area is meaningful to us. And that requires action. It's not just reading or seeing a TikTok thing about a really inspiring idea. It's what action should I take? Will I take? What results am I looking for? Again, it's not just action. It's the impact. Ultimately, that's the key question is what impact can you achieve? What action do you need to take to get to that impact? And then learning as you go in terms of did I achieve the impact I was going to? I thought I was going to achieve. If not, how can I modify my action, evolve my action? So to me, that's that's a key driver to uh, the value that people increasingly are going to see from ideas if they cannot yeah. act on it and get impact from it.
0: John, you know, we, we've heard Elon Musk recently talk about the fact that he he feels like his businesses are philanthropic in nature because we've got to be dealing with big issues that humanity's, um, you know, having to face uh, or, or very aspirational in terms of, uh, you know, the future of humanity. Um, and also we see clearly that um, the, the concerns around the environment and climate and so forth are are a pushing this concept of more sustainability like the ESG initiatives we see in corporations. So do you think that the nature of business itself as our technical technical capabilities improve, will become more aspirational, more forward-looking by nature of those sort of two uh, things coming together, the technical ability of the human race and the philosophical need for businesses to be doing good. Do do you think that's the path we're on, or is it a yin and yang? Yeah, uh,
1: complex question. I think that um, the, um, businesses today are locked into a very traditional way of operating, which is what I call scalable efficiency. The whole focus for success is doing things faster and cheaper. That's it. There is little, if any, right, focus right, very on, true. on the value that is being received by the stakeholders. And so I think that the, the question, again, ultimately is, how do we get people to see the opportunity To me, it's in in business as well as in our personal lives, it's all about looking ahead and starting to focus on the big opportunities that can inspire and motivate us to change. Otherwise, we're just gonna stay locked into responding to whatever's happening at the moment to go faster, cheaper.
2: A really good illustration of that is the global supply chain shock that we've all been living with, uh, the consequences of it for the last two years. Uh, here, we've got a system that's highly complex, and it's been optimized for efficiency. So to your point about scalable efficiency, uh, I would say the global supply chain is probably the exhibit A to illustrate mm-hmm. you know, scalable efficiency every step of the way. They've been stripping out cost, pushing down cost, pushing problems to some other partner in the supply chain, and so forth. And there's always more cost, cost to squeeze out. Um, but. The consequence of that is what you lose is resilience and you lose the ability of rapid adaptation to changing circumstances. So uh, it's great to have a highly complex and highly scalable and very efficient system like our supply chain when everything is running smoothly. But then as soon as you run into a hitch or a problem, and the pandemic was a significant problem because it caused that system to wind down, there was no there was no mechanism for winding down all the activity in the supply chain, it takes quite a while to spin that whole thing back up. So that illustrated that we actually, by optimizing for efficiency, we build in a weakness in our system and the weakness, what we sacrificed is resilience and the ability to respond in a flexible way. So I just
1: want to be a bit of a contrarian to you used the word resilience a couple of times. I'm a, an opponent of resilience. Tell um, me about that. Because when I talk to leaders about resilience and ask them what they mean by that, they mean it's the ability to bounce back. where we were i want to go back to where we were Uh, that's resilience versus how do we learn from the events unexpected events we're encountering and grow and and adapt even more and more impact evolve and adapt to achieve even more impact over time right that's missing from the mindset certainly Uh, that's a good good point
2: point yeah, oh, so resilience yeah. is about a reset, and the, you can't reset. It's changed for good. <laughs> it's um, the world. Yeah. But when you talk about accelerated learning, in a way, that sounds like it's almost a p- oppositional to scalable efficiency. Um, yeah. it, to some extent, if you're learning, you're trying things. Uh, just yesterday, we spoke to uh, another futurist, uh, John Smart. And he has a whole piece that he's written. We didn't get into this in the blog and in our in our podcast, but he's written about this quite a lot, which is about if you're envisioning possibilities, if you're starting to you know, expand the cone of possibility, you're trying to imagine different outcomes. He said, you're also going to expand the number of failures by definition, because you're going to be trying new things and not all of them are going to work. Uh, so the more you expand opportunity and the more you expand possibility, the more you increase failure. It's, it, it's a direct consequence of, of opening that aperture. Now, Well, we were talking about fear, I don't really want to go back to fear as a topic here, but it seems to me that one thing people are fearful of more than anything in business is fear of failure. Nothing paralyzes an executive like fear of failure. And so when you bring a new plan or bring a new idea, or you want to launch a new product, everybody's trying to de-risk that proposition and sure they've got a safe thing that they guarantee is going to work, but there is no guarantee. You might fail. Failure is part of the creative process. So tell me about accelerated learning as a kind of oppositional force to this emphasis on scalable efficiency, and then where does fear of failure fit into that?
1: Yeah, I, again, I, I draw the contrast between scalable efficiency and scalable learning. And mm-hmm. to me, um, this, the paradox is scalable efficiency is actually becoming less and less efficient because we're in a rapidly changing world And the way to achieve scalable efficiency was to tightly specify every task and ensure that it's done in the same way every time. That's less and less efficient. Scalable learning is the notion that the world is rapidly changing. Everyone in the organization is being confronted with unexpected situations, not just in the research labs, not just in the innovation centers, but everywhere and that we need to create an environment and an organization that will help these people to learn faster through action together. So how do we create that environment? And I'll just quickly give you one example that I think is interesting is uh, a company created experimentation platforms for everyone in their organization. Again, not just the research labs, but customer call center operators, maintenance people, They created experimentation platforms and invited them to come in and try out new approaches. But they could do it in a more risk-controlled way. This was not threatening to bring down the company. The risk was going to be managed on the platform. So it sent a powerful message to everyone in the organization. We need everyone to experiment. Not just, again, research people, everyone. And we're going to manage the risk for you. We're going to help manage the risk. When I was doing game
2: development, we used to have to build in a failure cycle uh, for the same reason. We said, gee, if you don't plan on a failure cycle, you're going to run into the failure cycle. You're just not going to have a plan for it. It's going to occur because by definition, you're building something no one's ever done before. In a, in a game, you really only find out if it's any good when people start playing it. So you need sort of a working version of it. And you try to get to the first playable version as soon as you can. Um, and then you find out what the problems are, and hopefully you've baked in enough time in your production schedule so that you can correct those problems before you have to push out uh, to the release. Now, I think a lot of companies fail to do that. Uh, They they don't want to think about failure, and so they just eliminate that from the calendar. But it's a big mistake if you're launching something new because there will be a failure cycle. It's just the question is whether or not you're prepared for it and whether you've banked enough time for it. Now, John, when people are listening to what you have to say, I think people, I want to be really clear here for the takeaway for the audience that are listening to this, because some folks might say, okay, he's talking about learning. He's talking about training employees. Uh, That's the job for our HR department. Uh, So we can just say to the HR department, well, we were just listening to this interesting podcast with John Hagel, and he's a really smart guy. And he says, all we need to do to solve this problem is to increase the amount of employee training. So let's just put together one more training program. And let our HR department do that.
0: It's Obviously, systems adaptation though, right? It's it's systemic yeah. learning. It's organizational learning. It's 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 economy level learning. It's broader yeah. than that, right? John?
1: Let me just clarify. I'm not talking about training programs because okay. that learning is the form of sharing existing knowledge. You're listening to somebody who already has the knowledge and you're trying to acquire the knowledge. You're sharing existing knowledge. In a rapidly changing world, Existing knowledge is becoming obsolete at an accelerating yeah, rate. Yeah, less
0: and less valuable. Yeah. So if
1: all you focus on is that, you're going to be diminishing your performance. The key is learning in the form of creating new knowledge through action together. That does not occur in a training room or a classroom. That occurs in the workspace with other workers who are confronting unexpected situations and learning on how to act to get more impact and hopefully excited about that opportunity. That's the key again, to cultivating this passion.
0: Yeah. Okay. You, you know, I'm a, a, a bit of a SpaceX fan, right? You know, and, and Elon's approach there in terms of the way they think about production. Uh, it, it it sort of it seems to me like the perfect example of what John's talking about is an organization that is prepared to do a ton of experimentation. The core mission in terms of what they're trying to accomplish hasn't necessarily changed, but how they're going to get there has changed fairly significantly over the yeah. last 20 years that SpaceX has been around, but yeah. their uh, ability to absorb uh, or, or as, you know, experiment and and learners organization seems- um, And you know, fail spectacularly, right, don't forget, like they failed yes. three
2: times in a row with the big rocket oh, yeah. launch and yeah. like, you know, the most public and humiliating way possible. And Elon walked out of the control room talked to employees and said, hey, for my part, I'm not done and I will not stop. You know, you kind of challenged right. them to stick with it. And they yeah. got it right on the next one. It's a really inspiring story. You're absolutely right. Now, John, let's talk a little bit about the the changing nature of the firm, because when you talk about knowledge and employees sharing knowledge, I take your point. I understand this isn't like we're looking for the HR department to run a training program. That question was a little bit of a softball for you, but I got the answer I was looking for. But I want to build on that. I want to expand it out a little bit. So, um you know, back in the nineties, when we first met at the time, companies were trying to unlock knowledge that was employed inside of employees heads. And the way to do that was with an intranet or some sort of knowledge network, you know, so we were trying to solicit employees to like post your knowledge and share your knowledge because in different departments, there's lots of different pockets of knowledge. We'll all be better off if we have that pooled somewhere, that's what a knowledge network was supposed to be, but it's all inside the company. Okay. Now fast forward to today, it's 30 years later. And today you have an enormous number of uh, uh, systems outside of companies. You know, I'm thinking about like GitHub as a repository for open source projects or the uh, rise of DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations. Cloud-based service, yeah. Yeah, new ways to organize communities uh, and incentivize communities to share. But these communities aren't necessarily under anyone's control. They're not part of the company. They're not employees on the payroll. So talk to me a little bit about that, John. Like when you work with companies today, do you orient them inward or do you encourage them to build networks outside of the company?
1: No, one of my most uh, favorite quotes, um, and I'm going to blank on the name of the guy, he was a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but he, he made the observation one day, he said, no matter how many smart people you have within your organization, just remember one thing, There are a lot more smart people outside your organization. And so if you're really focused on scalable learning and just focused on helping the people within your organization to learn faster, you're never going to learn as rapidly as those that systematically reach out and build relationships. And by the way, they have to be deep trust-based relationships because otherwise the third parties are not going to take risks and, and have the risk of failure. So it's got to be long term, deep trust based relationships with a growing number of third parties and inspiring them with really inspiring opportunities and questions so that they can focus the learning on things that really are going to matter. And so I think that's the missing element here. I think that's I like one it. of the
2: reasons why live events and conferences are so, continue to be so popular. Yeah. You know, for decades, people have been saying, oh, you know, the live conference business is going to get vaporized. It's going to turn into software. It'll be available online. And while there's a proliferation of online repositories for information, what Brett and I have both noticed just in the last two months is kind of, you know, now that America's decided <laughs> that the pandemic is over. I don't know if that's true or not, but we seem to have decided as a group that we're going back to conferences and suddenly the airports are full. People yeah. are flying around the country. You know there were a ton of people at consensus last week, the big event in Texas. Uh, so, so it seems to me that um, in companies, one acceptable way for executives to build and foster relationships with people outside of their company is to do it in person at a trade show or at a conference. That that's mm-hmm. like a kind of like a, an acceptable expense that you can do. Um, but well, but there's three of us
0: employed. Yeah,
2: <laughs> right. um, but I don't even know if that's the most effective means of transmitting information. I always question that. You know, a live event—it's
0: like, well, how much of the takeaway well, value? Here that's really that's why here? we write books as well, man. You know, because. <laughs> uh, but um, so J- John, um, at, at this part of the show, you know, as we start to to wrap up, um, we 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 like to really get into the futurist, um, you know, mindset, and so take us. 20, 30 years out, even beyond if you like, what is it about the future that really inspires you, that excites you, that gives you that anticipation? Um, you know, what, what about the future do you think is really going to change humanity for the better? Wow.
1: <laughs> uh, there are a lot of things that make me optimistic. I, I'll just focus on two. One was briefly mentioned, which was this notion of exponentially expanding opportunity we can create far more value with far less resource, far more quickly than would have been imaginable a decade or two ago. Huge opportunity to have much greater impact. And more specific on technology, um, one of my key passions is the notion of longevity and the ability of technology to help all of us not only live longer, but be far more healthy in our lives. And to the point where I believe we will be able to basically become immortal. The body will change, yeah. we'll have new organs installed, but man, we're just going to keep on going because the technology. How, how do you be there? So, so,
0: you know, assuming that we get the ability to extend human life materially. So, um, you know, uh, you know. Obviously, you've talked about this, uh, as have we all at some point. Ray Kurzweil talks a lot about it, and so forth. There's, there's uh, Aubrey de Grey working on this, and and various people. He's another one we're going to have to have on, too. By the way, mm. Rob. Um, but, um, it, it, how do you think longevity is going to change? human nature in, in respect to the future? Because when you can live to 150 years old, um, you know, as an example, the, the concept that, you know, you have to be out of school by, you know, age 20 something, you know, um, uh, with your graduate qualification, well, you could keep learning until you're 50, if, if you're going to live to 150. And uh, so how's that, how's longevity going to change the nature of human society? Do you think?
1: I think it changes everything. I mean, first of all, you mentioned schools. I believe schools are going to go away. The whole notion that we're going to go for a period of time, get certification, certification that we acquired knowledge that is now obsolete. Okay, good deal. And I think, again, the the notion is that as we live longer, as we see the opportunity to live longer, we're going to be more motivated to look into the future and be driven to achieve more impact because we are going to live longer. It's not just that we're going to be gone and somebody else's opportunity. That makes sense. No, yeah, yeah. It's our yeah, opportunity.
0: We're going to have to live with our decisions a lot longer. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, uh, who, who do you follow to learn about the future? And who do you, who do you respect as futurists or forecasters, um, you know, that, that have inspired you? Wow.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, there are so many in different in, in contexts and environments, but uh, you, you mentioned Ray Kurzweil, he's certainly been an inspiration for me. And uh, 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 Peter Diamandis is another one. Are you a sci-fi guy? Uh, yes. Uh, an, an interesting observation there is I was sci-fi when I was a child. And at that time, and when I was a child, sci fi was all about utopian futures, incredible right, right, right? Futures. Yeah, what are we doing now with sci fi? It's all about dystopian futures, how terrible the world's going to be ahead. Yeah, okay good way to feed the We food.
0: need to we definitely need to get back to those utopian viewpoints <laughs> um you know I, I someone was making a point about this I I've mentioned it before on the show but that um part of this may be um that stories have been more written towards movies and TV more recently um, and that our technical ability um was fairly limited in creating these very utopian um futures so we tended to you know it's easy to show blown up buildings and, and you know radiate a radiated world you know from a tv mm-hmm. production perspective um but you know now that that's uh those technical abilities are changing you know you do have these amazing series like um uh you know we've, we've seen foundation um you know, uh, Isaac, based on Isaac Asimov's uh, writing, um, you know, they're, they're in production for um, Snow Crash, I understand, which could be called Dystopian Future, right, in, okay. in some ways, right, um, and then you've got um, you know, the likes of um, um oh what is it altered carbon and, and things like that, you know, uh, they wouldn't have been in or, or, you know, even the, the way the Dune movie was remade, the technical abilities of us to create those stories is, is definitely improving, but uh, I think it's I also a
2: generational. I mean, remember, you know, our, our narratives, the stories we tell are always kind of a reflection of our own psychological process and where we're at. And look, the baby boom generation is great at demolishing institutions. seems to be what we're here to do. <laughs> Uh, We're not that great at building new institutions, And, and I'll say it even further. It's easy to be a disruptor. Disrupting is not hard. It's not hard to throw a brick through a plate glass window. It's very hard to build a plate glass window to manufacture a flat sheet of glass. That takes a great deal of skill and some foresight and some thought our generation hasn't really demonstrated a great ability to build institutions. So it's no surprise to me that the stories we tell ourselves are about busted futures. Uh, Maybe it's the job for another generation to come in and clean up the mess that we're leaving behind. What a bleak note. John, I don't want to end <laughs> on that bleak note, but I do no. want everyone to understand that John Hagel has been a leader at the very forefront of uh, organizational development and thinking about the future. He's been doing this for 40 years. Now he's focused on the psychology of change with his new book, The Journey Beyond Fear. But he's written a number of other books, including some that I'm very proud to have on my shelf: Net Gain, Net Worth, and a number of others. You can find his work on the web at johnhagel.com. He's got a great blog there. We post very lively, thoughtful, and easy to read pieces. They'll so share. Uh, he'll give you good insight to what he's thinking. You can also find him on Twitter at jhagel. You can find him on LinkedIn. And there's a huge archive of his writing uh, at EdgePerspectives.typepad.com. Uh, that's from the Institute of the Edge, where John spent a number of years as a partner at Deloitte. And John, thank you so very much for joining us and sharing your insight. This has been a great
0: pleasure for me and Brett. Fantastic, and, um, yeah.
2: I'm going to toss it over to you and
0: wrap us up for the day. No, thanks. thanks, John. We we really appreciate you coming along and joining The Futurist. That's it for another week of The Futurist podcast. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including uh, producer Lisbeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, and with support from our social media team, from Carlo Navarro and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode of The Futurists, um, make sure to tweet it out, post it on your favourite social media network, or um, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcast, Facebook, wherever it is you listen to the show. Those actions, of course, help other people find our podcast in terms that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to do what we love to do every week, which is getting behind the microphone, talking about the future. But that's it for this week. And uh, Rob and I will see you in the future. future.
2: Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on instagram and twitter at at futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask thanks for joining and as always
1: we'll see you in the future